Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. It was a morning in July of 1853. The town of Uraga, near the capital city of Edo, overlooked a bay in a country that had substantially isolated itself from the rest of the world many centuries earlier. On this morning, four foreign warships, ominously showing black hulls and no sails, appeared in the bay. The ships refused all demands to leave and instead commanded the many small boats sent out to meet them to disperse lest the black ships open fire. They had come as gunboat diplomats with cannons capable of delivering the new explosive Pexa shells. These they trained on the small coastal town which they threatened to obliterate. The Commodore was carrying a letter signed by his president, but for the contents of which he himself had personally lobbied. It demanded the negotiation of a treaty, making specific demands that would effectively open this long, inhospitable country to trade. The Commodore arranged a meeting on shore with representatives of the ruling elite, passed through throngs of dismayed armed warriors, and let it be known that he would return with even more warships a few months later, expecting the treaty to be signed. A few months later, upon his return, the natives would agree to virtually all of the demands outlined in the letter. The humiliation of this event ignited years of political turmoil. The warrior class that had ruled the country for many centuries and that had marginalized the authority of the emperor had been unable to defend its shores against the incursion of even the smallest fragment of the navy of a very distant foreign power. Old institutions began to crumble in the following years, eventually bringing down the warrior government after a brief civil war, the privileges enjoyed by the now discredited warrior class were removed, and in short order the class itself would disappear into history. The Meiji Restoration would bring in a new government loyal to the emperor. The mandate of the Meiji government was modernization in the Western sense, to develop a modern army, a railway system, an industrialized manufacturing base, and insular British-style means for securing foreign resources, a German-style university system, and an American-style swagger. This also entailed changes in the religious life of the country, particularly as the support shifted from Buddhism long favored by the discredited ruling class, toward Shinto, the tradition of the emperor, and as occasional mobs, moved by the spirit of the time, took it upon themselves 
to burn Buddhist temples or otherwise harass their occupants. The government was intent on bringing the religious institutions into the 19th century. Buddhism was to look more like Protestant churches in the West. An edict was issued in 1872 that prohibited any religious organization from requiring of its clergy celibacy, abstinence from alcohol and meat, and continual display of clerical garb. As planned, the edict initiated a gradual shift in the structure of the Buddhist establishment such that it would become a network of temples, the leadership of each of which was inherited within a single family from father to son, both priests, not monks, the system that prevails throughout the country today. The Edict of 1872 is a particularly pointed affront to Buddhist monastic life, as it had been practiced since the early introduction of the Buddha Way well over a millennium earlier. Over the coming decades, there would be, exactly as intended by the Meiji government, a gradual shift within Zen and other schools from a monastic clergy to a married priesthood, and monastic practice came to serve primarily as a mere internship for qualifying sons of priests in their father's profession. That was then. This was now. Seated at the front of the room, I shouted, Give me your questions! I had struck the floor loudly with the Dharma staff, inviting questions from a room packed full of people. For my Shuso ceremony, I had selected and posted a koan, which would optionally serve as the basis of any question that might be submitted. One of my favorites. One day, Shurto's disciple, Dao Wu, asked, what is the essential meaning of Buddha Dharma? Shurto replied, No gaining, no knowing. Dao Wu then asked, Can you say anything further? Shurto answered, The vast sky does not obstruct the floating white clouds. A priest begins his career technically as a priest in training, which in Japan has no specific prerequisites, but which in the San Francisco Zen Center tradition requires approval of a teacher who subjectively deems the candidate as worthy prior completion of two practice periods at Tassajara, sewing robes, and an ordination ceremony. This begins the first stage of his career. The priest then reaches a sufficient level of maturity in practice and priestcraft, according to the teacher's estimation, and is given the honor of serving as Shuso, or head student, for the duration of one practice period, generally two to three months, depending on the center. During that period, the Shuso plays the role of friend of the community, a counterpart to the Eno's responsibility as disciplinarian of the community, and is also responsible just to show what an exemplary chum he is indeed 
for cleaning all the toilets at the Zen Center. During the practice period, the Shuso has no Zendo role, Eno, Doan, etc., sits on an elevated platform next to the teacher in the Zendo, gives a weekly Dharma talk, and schedules an informal tea individually with as many students as he can entice. Cookies help, often two or three in one day. The Shuso's tenure culminates in a Shuso ceremony, after which the teacher generally, but not necessarily, grants the Shuso the right to function as a teacher to give Dokusan, the formal one-on-one meetings between student and teacher, to continue giving Dharma talks, still under the teacher's close supervision. This begins the second stage of the priest's career, that of the former Shuso, which will end in Dharma transmission to start the third stage of his career. At my Shuso ceremony, Barbara handed me, in an immoderately ritual fashion, a Dharma staff, which I carried along a horseshoe path to my seat, holding it horizontally at face level, skimming over many seated heads. Having taken my seat, I then elicited questions in the traditional, imposing way as follows. This is the Dharma staff, five feet long. Once a black snake on Vulture Peak, it became the Udumbara flower. At Shaolin Temple, it burst forth the five petals of Zen. Sometimes it's a dragon swallowing heaven and earth. Sometimes a Vajra sword giving and taking life. This staff is now in my hands. Though just a mosquito biting an iron bull, I cannot give it away. Dragons and elephants, let us call forth the Dharma. Give me your questions. I uplifted my Eno voice to bellow the last lines, then smote the floor mightily under the heel of this staff that had once swallowed heaven and earth and that was now prepared to give or take life, zeny life. Each nervous questioner in turn bowed before me and asked a short question for which they were entitled to a concise and blazingly insightful answer. Shuso, if there is nothing to gain, why bother? You bother because you still think there is something to gain. We had a visitor, a priest from a now little-known but once large Japanese sect called Tendai. Dogen was originally ordained in that sect and acquired his Zen affiliation later in China. So my visitor set me up nicely with his question. Shuso! Can a Tendai priest become enlightened? Dogen did. The questioner was sometimes permitted a follow-up question, but once I smote the floor with the Dharma staff, once a black snake, she was dismissed. Former Shusos were, by tradition, the last to submit questions and usually asked the most difficult ones, except for going blank on some of the critical and evidently imperfectly memorized lines 
The ceremony went reasonably well. The next day, Barbara told me she would like me to start giving formal dokusan. I thus had entered the second stage of my priestly career. From the beginning, there had been a bit of tension around the role of priests at Austin Zen centers, as perhaps at most Zen centers in America. One aspect of this had to do with privilege. As one of our founding members put it, the rest of us have to pay to attend sessions and workshops. The priests get paid to do the same thing. Many, but not all, of the priests were sustained financially by the center, including me, largely because of my indispensable carpentry and computer skills. The pay was a marginal supplement, toothpaste money, to room and board, and the priests had a lot of responsibilities in exchange. Many priests throughout America lived fairly marginal economic existences, much like struggling artists or actors, working just enough to enable them to support their practice with no thought of supporting family, bartender, or a powerboat. I ill-afforded a pretty funky health insurance policy. Envy towards priests was perhaps natural, since we enjoyed a far more satisfying life than most, with relative distance from everyday concerns. And it must be conceded with regard to paying for sashins that since the Mahayana teaches that the individual adherent practices not for himself but for all beings, it is incongruent to demand that this individual, and not all beings, be the ones to foot the bill for his practice, unless he is a priest for whom all beings do pay. Another aspect of the tension had to do with people's naive expectation of what priests were. Many expected monks to be pure in conduct and pristine in every other way, but then, to their dismay, spotted one of them drinking beer or eating a hamburger, or learned some truth about who was sleeping with whom. Others, on the other hand, decidedly did not want pristine. They wanted someone they could personally identify with, regular people in robes. But robes strictly within the center and only during necessary formal occasions. Many of the latter persuasion, now seeing little difference between themselves and the ideal clergy person they imagined, took the natural next step of asking, Why do we need priests at all? Why don't we just run as a lay center on the model of those exemplary Quakers who once occupied these very rooms? Nonetheless, the great majority of lay members of the center seem to appreciate the presence of the priests and their inspiration to practice whatever priest might be or however priest might behave. Keep in mind, though, that in this thriving Buddhist center, what little consensus existed was always achieved through vote by foot. We were quite aware that most people who arrived once at our doors as wide-eyed beginners would never return again. The same culture shock I had once experienced in California was now serving in Austin to drive many into the hands of Shimbalians, 
Theosophists, Sufis, Unitarians, and Quakers. Those rare individuals who did return were those who had an affinity for our way. But over time, the accumulation of enough of these rare birds constituted a thriving gaggle of a Buddhist community generally supportive of us priests and our ways. I had for some time been aware that renunciation had become a four-letter word in the vocabulary of American Buddhism. Few American teachers gave it even lip service as a Buddhist value. At least one of our own well-to-do priests was in the habit of openly denying that it had any relevance to Buddhism, even claiming on one occasion in a Dharma talk that the Buddha discovered that renunciation does not work. I suspect he was confusing this with the morbid asceticism that the Buddha had indeed rejected. Even the Zen priest's ordination ceremony refers to our practice as the path of renunciation. The relegation of renunciation to the fringes of the Western Buddhist vocabulary baffled me because, although I was not always the pristine renunciate I had once aspired to be, it seemed to me that all of the progress I personally had made on the path was directly correlated with what I had given up or curtailed, the physical trappings of life, relations and obligations like debt and car ownership, conceptualizations like self-view, identity or being somebody, behaviors like partying flirtatiously or channel surfing, and even the clinging emotions rooted in greed or anger. I had found practice to be no more and no less than a long process of disengagement strand by strand, from soap-operatic existence of renunciation. And I knew from my reading that both the Buddha and Dogen thought and taught this as well. This is what it takes to pass through the looking glass. What a notion that it could be otherwise. But in its stead, meditation had become, for many American teachers, Banking on American Buddhism's greatest strength, the end-all and be-all. You meditate a lot, practice in the world, then become enlightened and offer gift-bestowing hands. Renunciation wasn't necessary, but I knew this couldn't have been right. I had been a meditator for 17 or 18 years before becoming a Buddhist, without having darkened nor trod on what I now recognized as the Buddhist path. I certainly had found great power, stillness, and benefit in my pre-Buddhist meditation practice, but it was only upon wielding it as a tool for investigating sangsara and beginning the slow process of disentanglement through renunciation that the path had opened up for me. Clearly, there was a degree of doctrinal disagreement among the priests. 